All right, good morning. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. We are all on a journey, and uh, this journey that we call life, and I talk about this every week, but um, most of us uh, made a pretty good mess of our lives uh, and got to a point in our life where we discovered that we're really not God and we're not any good at it, um, and that we really needed God's help. So we come to a place like this thinking that if we just learn enough, we can make a decision to follow Christ. And what happens is, the more we learn about Christ, the more we understand that it's really about surrender. And the more we surrender, we discover that we're actually falling in love. And that this is a heart thing, not just a head thing. And, and we've been in the book of Revelation now, we're on um, week 21. And the book, um, we're all the way to chapter 11, so we're almost halfway through. Now I will tell you that after today, we're going to take a break, do a Christmas series, and then we'll rejoin Revelation uh, after the first of the year. But for today, um, we're in chapter 11, and we're, we're in what we talked about last week, one of the interludes that occurs in Revelation. It's almost like God says, okay, we're going to take a breath. A lot's going on. Let's just stop and take a breath. And last week, if you remember, he told John, you've got to preach the word again, even though it's bittersweet, even though there's an awareness that the, the, the love of God is great, but those who miss out are, are going to die and they're going to spend eternity in hell, even though it's bittersweet. And even though you're 90 years old, John, you've got to keep preaching. You've got to keep telling the truth. As we look, the message of this interlude essentially is no matter what happens on earth, God's people cannot stop testifying to the truth. As seals and trumpets and bowls are unleashed on earth, God is using his people to preach the truth to anybody who will listen. Amen. Now sometimes during the tribulation, those are followers of Jesus who are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we see that at times the people who are sealed with the Spirit are protected from some of the, the bold judgments, or some of the, some of not bold judgments, the sealed judgments. However, as we get to the last three and a half years of the tribulation, the remaining Jewish people who follow Jesus are going to be hunted. They're persecuted, they're martyred, they're tortured. We're beyond the Gentile period now. The, the last part of the tribulation is all about bringing the Jewish people home. The entire focus is on the Jewish nation. And despite this, they are instructed to speak the truth boldly. You see, the great tribulation is God's final push to try to convert Jewish people to Jesus. Initially, the people who follow Jesus will be targeted, but once the Antichrist reveals himself as God, he's going to demand that every religion, every Muslim, every Jew, every Messianic Jew surrenders to him or be killed. These are not nice times. But now John takes a pause before this starts and he says, look, there's some key players you need to know about. And today we're going to look at two that are called the two witnesses. Next time when we join, we'll talk about the false prophet, we'll talk about the Antichrist, we'll talk about the 144,000. Just wait till after Christmas. It's going to be wonderful. Now to remind everybody where we left off last week, God reminded John, even though you're into your 90s, even though the message is bittersweet, even though the world's falling apart, even though they may kill you for this, you've got to keep proclaiming the truth. You need to be a witness and you need to testify. Now, being a witness and testifying are not the same thing. You're a witness because of what you've experienced. Every believer is a witness to the transformed life that has occurred once they surrender to Christ. We're all witnesses of that. You are a witness. What you're called to do with that experience is testify about it. Tell everyone what you've experienced. Recently, I've been binge-watching crime TV shows. I didn't know why. 48 Hours, Crime Central, Cold Cases. I actually sit there and Tammy goes, how many times are you going to say this? I'm amazed that people will kill other people for no reason at all. I just sit there and go, how is this possible? They just killed somebody for nothing. 
But I find myself in these shows drawn to the witnesses. There are so many of them. In almost every crime, it seems dozens of people witnessed what happened. But no one will testify. They're afraid of retaliation. Yet their testimony is the only thing that will remove these threats from their lives. I've learned that there is a huge difference between being a witness and being a witness who's willing to testify. I've tried asking God, what are you trying to teach me through all these shows I suddenly have an interest in? These are hard shows to watch. For some reason, I've been drawn to them. The violence and disregard for human life is absolutely sick. But I began to notice that these witnesses remind me of the church. We've seen incredible events. We've discovered the truth. We've been entrusted with the answers. The message given to us literally will destroy the enemy's hold on other people. But it's not enough to be a witness. God calls us to do something much bolder. Think of it this way. You're a witness and what you're called to do is to testify. In other words, your life has changed because you've been transformed by Jesus Christ. Those looking into your life can go, wow, you're different than you used to be. What happened to you? You're, you, you're now full of more love and joy and peace and patience. And people can see that even if you don't open your mouth. They've seen a change in your life. You call yourself a follower of Jesus because he transformed your life. You're the best witness to what God has done in your life. But they'll not know Jesus until you testify and give him the glory for the change in your life. You see, God uses your testimony to reach other people. Your testimony, attributing the change in your life to your relationship with Christ. That's what draws other people in. For all they know, you just read a great self-help book. Or finally watched the right Oprah show. Or you went to a meditation class or you finally went to anger management. If you don't testify giving glory of the change in your life to God then the people around you will not see the glory of God, no matter how strong of a witness you are. You can live a perfect, upstanding Christian life and think others should just know you're a believer. But they don't. Jesus lived a perfect life. He still had to testify to the Father. Churches today are full of witnesses who are not testifying. We complain about what Satan is doing in the world, but we're too fearful to testify about God. You and I are called to do both. Your witness is a change in your life. It's testimony giving God the credit. It is critical to understand as we move towards the end of times, God expects us to testify no matter what the cost. People will continue to be martyred. People will refuse to be silent. We meet two people today in our passage who are strong witnesses who boldly proclaim the truth. Let's dive in and take a look. Revelation chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Now this is new information. What temple? There's no temple in Jerusalem anymore. Remember, the Romans destroyed it in A.D. 70. They said the temple would not have one stone standing. The story, when they burned Rome, they literally heated the temple up so much that the rocks exploded. John, after he's just been told, go prophesy again, now he's giving a measuring stick. A yardstick. Go measure the sanctuary and the altar and count those who worship there. That's odd. We've seen this before, though. Remember, in Revelation, there's almost nothing new that's introduced. We've seen it before. Ezekiel, verse, chapter 40, verse 2. In visions of God, he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain, on which the structure like a city to the south. 
When he brought me here, behold, there was a man whose appearance was like bronze, with a linen cord and a measuring reed in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway, and the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears, and set your heart upon all that I show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show it to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. Then in Ezekiel 41 through 43, the angel measures every square inch of the temple, every square inch, the size of every room, the width of almost every stone, the measurement of every court, the gateway to the temple, the size of the temple, you name it, God had this, this angel measure it. For example, let me just show you a part, Ezekiel 41 two. The breadth of the entrance was 10 cubits. The side walls of the entrance were five cubits on either side. And he measured the length of the nave, 40 cubits, and its breadth, 20 cubits. Then he went to the inner room and measured the jabs of the entrance, two cubits, and the entrance, six cubits, and the sides of either side of the entrance, seven cubits. And he measured the length of the room, 20 cubits, its breadth, 20 cubits, across the nave. And he said to me, this is the most holy place. These measurements are continued for two full chapters. In Ezekiel, he measures every square inch of the temple. Then he brought me there, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like brass. He said to me, look with your eyes, hear with your ears, set your heart upon what I show you. Now, we've seen this measurement in other passages as well. Remember, nothing really new is ever introduced in Revelation, except the temple this time. The prophet Zechariah. He was told not to measure the temple, but to measure Jerusalem itself. I lifted my eyes and saw, behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I said, where are you going? And he said, to measure Jerusalem, to see what it's width and what's its length. Okay, so what's up with this measuring stick thing? Why is God so focused on getting things measured? He already knows the answer. Well, it's important that you remind people of ownership. You have to stake out your claim. We see this all the time. When you join a community and you buy a lot, the first thing they do is they sort of mark off your spot. This is your acre. This is your land. This is where it starts. This is where it ends. This is how far it is. That way, everyone knows what's being bought. And more importantly, everyone knows who it belongs to. You see, in the scriptures, when something is measured, they're claiming ownership. If you remember from our series, God's House, the temple is the place where God chooses to dwell with his people. As they're wandering through the wilderness, God said, I want you to build a tent, the tabernacle, where I'm going to dwell with you. Solomon's temple was the same. The rebuilt temple from Nehemiah's time was the same until Jesus abandoned it as God's home When he turned them over to their own desires, God tore down the curtain. The building itself would be destroyed by Rome. Measuring the temple in each circumstance verified two things. First, that it was actually built to the exact specifications God said to build it. And second, God is reminding people that the temple belongs to me. In a sense, measure it and remember that it's mine. So in Ezekiel 40 through 42, we learn that every measurement of the temple, God stakes his claim. And as soon as he's finished staking his claim to the temple, look what happens. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. And I fell on my face as the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. You see, once God staked his claim, once he measured the temple, then he dwelt in the temple. So in this verse in Revelation, we have another measurement. Why? Well, a new temple's been built. This one by the Jewish people under the peace treaty of the Antichrist. No indication that God was planning to dwell there or was pleased to dwell there. In a sense, it's unclaimed. At the moment, the new temple built during the first half of the tribulation is no different than every other temple built to every false god in the world. What made the first two temples in Jerusalem special was that God dwelt there and claimed them as his own. 
we soon know the Antichrist is going to go into this temple and try to claim himself to be God. He's going to walk into the Holy of Holies and declare himself to be God, something Jesus called the abomination of desolation. So before that occurs, God wants to make sure that this temple is his. He's letting everyone know by measuring it that he's claiming ownership. Throughout our history, people built temples to false gods, and God never once measured them. If God's measuring something, he's claiming it as his. What the Antichrist is going to do in this temple is only an abomination because God has already claimed it as his and the Holy of Holies as his place. John is told to go measure the temple of God and obtain the number of the people who worship there. So what's introduced here is the third temple. First we had the tabernacle in the wilderness, then we had the first temple of Solomon, then we had the temple of Jesus' day, and now we have the third temple built during the tribulation. All three measured, all owned by God. If you've ever been to Jerusalem and you felt the tension on the Temple Mount, you know this is a problem. Currently, there's a big honking dome smack dab in the middle of the outer courts. The Muslims are not eager to see that dome get destroyed. When you walk onto the Temple Mount, you begin to see that there's a lot of tension up there. But remember, the temple, the third temple that's going to be built is part of a peace treaty that the Antichrist is going to bring forth. There can be no peace treaty in the Middle East if you wipe out that dome. Now here's the interesting part and something that once again shows the sovereignty of God. When the Romans destroyed the temple, they really left nothing except a bunch of rocks that were demolished just as Jesus had prophesied and no one really knew for sure where the temple was exactly on the Temple Mount. The mount is huge. It measures 530 yards along the west, 500 yards along the east, 330 yards along the north, 300 yards along the south. It's 37 acres. It's huge. Now, the Dome of the Rock was built where Muslim historians believe the original temple was built. And they wanted to make sure that they built their dome on top of where the original temple was because they wanted to claim that land forever. Years ago, a bunch of Jewish people began to dig down under the Western Wall because they believed they could dig down and go in and find the center of the temple where they hoped to find the Ark of the Covenant and other things that were buried before the Romans invaded. Eventually, they got too loud digging and the Muslims heard them and made them stop. But there is a tunnel that goes underneath and the people who study this say that where the Dome of the Rock is is not where the temple is. Recent historical and archaeological discoveries suggest that the dome was built too far north. Technically, they built their temple in the outer court of the Gentiles. The new temple would likely not be built in place of the dome, but they're planning to build it beside it. I believe, and this is just me speaking now, that the Antichrist will usher in a peace treaty by Israel by offering a solution to the fight over the Temple Mount. The Jewish people can build their temple adjacent to the current dome. Now, I didn't just dream that up. I think it's supported in Scripture or I wouldn't have said it. Look at the very next verse. Look at what God told John not to measure and not to claim as his. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, 42 months is three and a half years. Notice that God's saying, look, I don't care what happens in the outer courts. That dome over there, that's, don't measure it. It's not mine. I'm not claiming that. Now, during the great tribulation, no one's going to be spared. The Gentiles will rule the earth. They will trample it for three and a half years. And believers are going to be martyred, seized, tortured, beaten, and everything else that pagans can think to do to them. 
The world will be at war against God's people. The Antichrist trying his best to destroy everything and every one of God. God claims this temple as his. The term gave over is one of the way God judges. Sometimes he just gives us over to our sin nature and lets nature take its course. Now in Revelation, by measuring the temple and not the outer courts, God is giving them over to those who reject Jesus as their just punishment. Jesus himself spoke of the moment when God would allow the Gentiles to trample his people, his followers. It's the time that God cut short to protect the saints. Look at the warning Jesus gives to believers immediately after talking about the abomination of desolation. The moment the Antichrist declares himself to be God, goes into the Holy of Holies and makes an image of himself. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know it is the desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the inside city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill what is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. God says that the city of Jerusalem and the people will be given over to the wrath of the pagans for three and a half years. Now notice, God is still in sovereign control. He sets a limit on the punishment. He's not out of control. The Temple Mount is not out of control, even though it looks like it. Jesus continues, but before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you'll gain your lives." Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never would be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, the days will be cut short. God's temple has always been the place where God's word goes out. Nothing can stop or overcome the truth of the word of God. So God makes sure that those that are near this new temple and his city hear the power of the word of God. And while the Antichrist is given time to bring war to the remaining believers uh, to claim the Holy of Holies, God makes sure that the truth is being projected out for all to hear. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, that's three and a half years, soaked in sack, or clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out of their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the day of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Our two witnesses. The truth of the word of God is going to be projected from the temple of God. The abomination of desolation will take place in the middle of the tribulation. The Antichrist is going to claim to be God. But the two witnesses are going to constantly tell the truth and directly call him out as a fraud and a liar. He will hate them almost as much as he hates Jesus. Now many have tried to identify who these two people are gonna be. But before we get too far into this, and we are gonna go through a few possibilities, I want you to remember that who they are must not be that important or God would have told us exactly who they are. But we wonder. And I wanna show you 
The reason I want to show you some of these options is to show you how Scripture might interpret Scripture. A lot of people say, well, these two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. Most say Elijah clearly has to be one of them. Some think Elijah must be the witness because his ministry seems like what these two witnesses do. He's carried up to heaven. His enemies were destroyed by fire. It's specifically prophesied that Elijah will return before the end of the age. And Elijah is one of the people that met with Jesus at the transfiguration. At the same time, Moses and Elijah have been hanging out with Jesus at the transfiguration. So a lot of people said, okay, this is Moses and Elijah. Not only did God use Elijah to bring doubt, but he was drought, uh, drought, but he was taken up to heaven and he never died. He was taken up in a chariot. That makes others think the other one is not Moses, but somebody else who escaped death. So Moses and Elijah are two great prophets of the Old Testament. Moses, God gave the written law. Elijah, God gave the oral prophet law. Some think Moses is one of the witnesses because his ministry seems like this is what he would do. The enemies of Moses were destroyed by fire too, and he also was at the transfiguration. In addition, if you remember, Elijah was used to turn the rain off, and Moses was used to bring the plagues. So a lot of people say this must be Moses and Elijah. Now there's also a case for Joshua and Zerubbabel, one of your favorite people, I'm sure. You could make a strong argument that these are the two witnesses. It comes from Zechariah 4. The angel who talked to me came again and woke me like a man who was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, behold, I, I see a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. Then the angel who talked to me answered and said, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. The word of the Lord going forth in the power of the Spirit through Zerubbabel. Look at the next verse. And the second time I answered him, what are these two branches and the olive trees? Beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out. And he said, do you not know what these are? Angels are like that. You don't know who they are? Okay. I said, no, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So a lot of people have looked at this passage and said, okay, the two anointed one are these two. Then there's the case for Elijah and Enoch. Remember that Adam and Eve were created by God to live forever. After sin entered the world, God graciously limited the time we have to spend in a sinful world. We call that death. Living in your sinful state for all eternity is the definition of hell. So death actually brings us out of this place to a better place. In Genesis 5, if we were to walk through the graveyard, we'd see that each generation seems to wind down in years. Adam lived 930, Seth lived 912, and then you get down to Enoch. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God, and he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. He was not, for God took him. That's odd. Enoch doesn't die. Are we sure? Well, the author of Hebrews says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was commended as having pleased God. See, there's only two people in the Bible that have never died. Some say these two people have to be Elijah and Enoch because they are going to be killed by the Antichrist and they're the two people that never died. They say that every person born under the sin curse has to die. These two haven't, so it has to be them. 
they quote Hebrews 9.27 where it says it is appointed for men to die once. These two never died. The problem is that verse in Hebrews is a, it's appointed, it's not a mandate, it's a generalization. For instance, Lazarus died twice. Does that violate it? All who get raptured never die. So holding on to this verse is a reason for these two. If you ask me, I think it's Moses and Elijah. That's what I think. Doesn't matter. Could be Peter, Paul. Could be James and John. Could be Peter, Paul, Mary. I don't think so. I'd go with Moses because they seem to be God's A-team. Moses and Elijah. And they're going to go mano a mano with the Antichrist. So I think they're going to be big hitters. Pick any two you want. It doesn't matter. What you need to know is they are going to be boldly proclaiming truth. They will drive the Antichrist crazier if that's possible. And we're going to see that God gives them unique powers. Now, I went through all that to show you that we have no idea who the two witnesses are. We can speculate, hopefully based on Scripture, but it doesn't matter. What matters is they are unstoppable truth-tellers. They'll do their ministry as two olive trees and two lampstands. Olive trees provide oil for lamps. Lamps provide light. They are the bearers of divine light in a very dark world. The Holy Spirit is often represented by oil and the truth of God and Jesus are the light. These two witnesses, whoever they are, will be continually powered by the Holy Spirit to shine the light of God in the darkest ever places during the darkest time in human history. They will have the power to oppose those who uh, try to attack them through fire coming out of their mouths. Power the word of God. They'll be able to halt rain like Elijah. They'll be able to bring plagues like Moses. God tells us they'll prophesy for three and a half years in sackcloth, the garment of grief, humility, mourning, and repentance. So when will they stop? Now, it's important to pause here and make sure we note something. No one can touch these witnesses until God allows it. They can stand in the streets of Jerusalem broadcasting God's truth. Their testimony will go out across the entire world. People will want to kill them, but they can't touch them. Not until God says it's okay. The scriptures tell us no one will be able to touch them until the time of their testimony is done. In other words, they're on earth not to be witnesses, but to testify. And there's something God wants them to testify to and for a specified time. And no one can touch them until that mission is accomplished. Now, you know the same is true for the global church, right? The witnesses are protected during their ministry but die at the end. God is going to preserve his church throughout the ages. The gospel is going to be proclaimed. And no one can touch a believer until God says so. No one is martyred until God says it's time for their testimony to end. I believe the church today is being crushed and because we are a bunch of witnesses who won't testify. And you know it's the same for us, right? I mean, you're on this planet because you're a witness and because you have a testimony. God has completely transformed our lives. He wants to use our experience to reach other people. We're here to testify to what we have seen and experienced in our walk with God. We are under God's protection until our testimony is done. And when it's done, he'll call us home. Nothing can happen to any of us until God says it can the only reason we're here instead of dead and in heaven is because we still have a mission to accomplish and our testimony still needs to be told. The mission that is your life, your witness and your testimony are going to impact other people and bring glory to Christ. 
You have unique experiences that God is going to use to allow you to reach other people. You will reach people I'll never know. He's going to send you into their lives not to hang out, but to speak about how wonderful he is. If you're not going to testify, if you're not going to give glory to God to what's happened in your life, then your mission is stagnated. And the potential of what was planned to do in and through your life is muted. You're living your Christian life for yourself. God calls us to testify. That's our mission. That's our duty. We are to tell people constantly what Jesus has done in our lives. Verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that's Jerusalem, that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nation will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. What's going to happen to them is exactly what Mary was worried was going to happen to Jesus. That they would bring him out of his tomb and take him to the city square. That's why she said, where have you taken my Lord? I'll go get him. Again, nothing happens to them until they finish their testimony. God is in control of every detail, every event throughout the entire book of Revelation and every other moment that we've ever heard of. The beast from the bottomless pit is Satan. The great city is Jerusalem. But at this point, it's full of corruption. It's been given over to the Gentiles, and God says it's symbolically Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom and Egypt. It's the city where the Antichrist is starting to dominate. During the first three and a half years, Jesus, or Jerusalem's leadership was in sync with the Antichrist. Any city in love with the Antichrist and in a covenant with him would be called Sodom. These two are savagely killed by Satan and the Antichrist. Their bodies are gazed upon by the whole world and they are refused burial, the ultimate disgrace for a Middle East person. Both Jews and Muslims bury people within 24 hours of their death so as not to bring disgrace upon them. Notice that people from all over the world, every nation, every tribe, will see their dead bodies lying in the streets for three and a half days. Now, it's funny, if you go back and read Bible commentaries from the 1500s, there's a lot of speculation of how people from all over the world are going to see this. They couldn't imagine that people all over the world could see all these bodies at once. They didn't know about smartphones and social media and the internet, but we see it. Every minute of this is going to play out on TV, on our phones. It'll be in the news. People will be watching these bodies on webcams. Right now, you could go and there's a webcam of the Western Wall. You can watch it 24-7 if you want. People will be doing all kinds of things to their bodies. They are hated. God has been doing horrible things to them, and now they have God's chosen prophets whom they have killed, and they think they're victorious over, but it gets worse. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because of these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on earth. Peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will see their dead bodies left in the street and humiliate them for three and a half days. They will gloat and celebrate and give each other gifts. It's a new holiday. It's going to be called probably Dead Witnesses Day. Happy Dead Witnesses Day. Here's a gift. What a stunning indictment of human depravity. We're going to have a holiday while we celebrate these corpses laying in the streets. Remarkably, this is the only mention of rejoicing in Revelation. Men and women will hate God so much that only in the killing of his servants will they be happy. They hated him, they hate us. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus teaches, but when the helper comes, who I'll send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Notice again that they are called to bear witness. The Holy Spirit will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness about me. He didn't say you'll live your life as a Christian just doing everything right. No, he's like, you're going to speak. And as times get to the end, you're going to speak more and more and more. The Holy Spirit will tell you what you need to say, when you need to say it, but you will not be silent. Witnesses must testify. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw them. That's going to be so cool. Imagine the slow motion replay highlight as they rise and stand on their feet. We're back. After three and a half days, the breath from God entered them and they stood on their feet. The three and a half days reminds us of the entombment of Christ. The breath of life takes us back to Ezekiel 37, where God tells a valley of dry bones to rise in his spirit. Everyone will know that it is God who raised them from the dead. There'll be no doubt. Not surprisingly, great fear is going to fall on those who were celebrating Happy Dead Witness Day. This is certainly one of the great understatements in the entire Bible. The most watched video on YouTube until it's censored. God's just warming up. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is soon to come. No one can doubt who's calling the shots now. The enemies watch them, they're hit with an earthquake. 7,000 people are killed. We don't know if that means the perfect number of thousands or if it's really 7,000, it doesn't matter. God says 7,000, that's what we need to know. Now remember, the sixth seal ended with an earthquake. Now the sixth trumpet ends with an earthquake. Remember in the sixth seal, they all cried out for the rocks to fall on them and kill them. Now the sixth trumpet ends with an earthquake. And then we read this really odd verse that people have debated forever. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of the heavens. Does that mean they're repentant? Did they just become believers? We're not really told. We do know that during the tribulation, there's a great harvest of Jewish people, and perhaps this is it. One-tenth of the city died, 7,000 dead from an earthquake. Did everybody else repent? John doesn't answer that question. But if they were all on the fence, seeing dead witnesses rise and being called up to heaven by God himself, that should probably do it. I believe this is the great harvest of the remaining Jewish people. The second woe has passed. The third woe is soon to come. God vindicates his servants who serve him, and he deals with sinners who reject him. First group gets grace and mercy. The second group gets judgment and wrath. The second woe, the sixth trumpet has passed. The third woe, the seventh trumpet, which contains the seven bowls of Revelation 16, is coming quickly. For those who were celebrating Happy Dead Witness Day, party's over, the seventh trumpet is about to blow. Last week we learned that the gospel message is both bitter 
and sweet. This week we learn that the gospel message must be proclaimed. Witnesses must testify to the truth that they have experienced. I am stunned when I watch these crime shows. All they have to do to change their world is testify to what they know. They know what happened. They know that what they know can save others, but they're afraid. So they live their lives as witnesses who never see what happens if they actually testify to the truth. You see, when they witness a murder, if they would just speak up, that person would be off the street. And if every witness spoke up, the world would be a different place in the inner cities. It blows my mind. But they're afraid. If they all push through their fear, they could destroy the one who threatens them. I, f- I find myself wondering how, how they could have watched something so powerful, so memorable, so life-changing, and then keep it to themselves. How do you watch someone get murdered and then refuse to testify? And that's what it hit me. We're all witnesses to the greatest murder in the history of humankind. Because of Jesus, our lives have been completely transformed. Hallelujah. We're witnesses to that truth, and we're witnesses to the truth that he is alive today. Yet many refuse to testify. Our testimony in the hands of God will change lives. But we stay silent just like they do out of fear. Too often believers are hesitant to testify to others because they're afraid they'll have some consequences. Really bad consequences. They may offend somebody. They might be rejected by somebody. They might be labeled by someone. Ooh. Few of us are truly facing martyrdom in the U.S. today. Yet here we are, witnesses to Christ who refuse to talk about it who are kept silent. Why is the left progressing? Because Christians aren't testifying. You see, the truth about God is offensive to those who reject God. But rejecting God should be offensive to us. We're headed to the end of times, the darkest of dark. We're here right now for such a time as this. We're here to fight Satan with the power of the Word of God, just like the two witnesses. The two witnesses and those who were martyred in the Great Tribulation knew that God was in sovereign control of their life. They could not be touched until their mission on earth, their testimony, was completed. And when they were touched, Jesus says, come on up to heaven. I think the same thing holds back the church. You see, when we see the two witnesses, I pray we see ourselves. They didn't just stand around looking holy. The word from their mouth was fire. They boldly proclaimed truth without any concern for what would happen to them. They knew that God had them on a mission to testify and no one could touch them until it was complete. Imagine the church of Jesus and what it would be like if we all embraced that same truth. Tomorrow, we all go back to the daily routines. Thanksgiving holiday is over. Christmas is coming. We'll interact with dozens of people. Many are going to go to hell. Many are just like we were before somebody was bold enough to speak to us, to actually testify. Our lives... Each of us individually are incredibly powerful stories of the transformative power of Christ in your life. But do we care about those around us enough to actually testify to that truth, to tell them, to actually tell them why we have the hope that we have? What does your testimony really cost you when you get down to it? What does your silence cost them? Don't be fearful of what Satan can do to you when you testify. Be excited about what God will do through your testimony to him. 
Tomorrow, when the time comes to step up and tell others about the truth of Jesus, I want you to raise your right hand. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth? So help you, God. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the two witnesses because they show us what you want. You told John that he would have to proclaim the truth, and then you show him how you want your truth proclaimed. Two witnesses, bold, unafraid, untouchable until their mission is complete. And God, I think you wanted us to see ourselves in them. No one can hurt us. Nobody can touch us. No one can do anything to us unless it goes through you first. I'm less concerned about what will happen if I testify to the truth than I am how your heart feels when I stay silent. God, help us to be a people who aren't just witnesses, but witnesses who are willing, eager, and ready to testify. Let's pray. God, for many of us, we need to admit that we haven't really been testifying for you. We've been transformed. We've been saved. We know the Holy Spirit's in us, but we seek out comfort. We really are still serving ourselves because you didn't go through all that work, all the pain, all the tears, all the years to give us a testimony that we never share. You just didn't. So God, would you give us boldness? Would you give us awareness that we're not here just to come to church and sing hymns and hang out? We're on a mission to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. We've all witnessed amazing things. And you'll call us to testify. So God, I pray for every person listening to my voice that in the next few days you'll put somebody in their path and the Holy Spirit will prompt them to testify. And God, make them miserable until they do because the mission's that important. We love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.